0: Uh, there's this there's this question that philosopher Thomas Nagel asks of bats. He says, is there, "Is there something it's like to be a bat?" And it's like a good question for, um, for us to think through whether something's conscious or not. Is my dog conscious? Well, is there something it's like to be him? And I wanted to apply this to to the Trinity and see if we could. Um, and, and maybe it's inappropriate, but is there something that it's like to be the Son that is distinct from what it's like to be the Father, uh, and then and, and the Spirit, likewise. And then is there something it's like to be God? Um, What do you make of that? Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I'm your host, Parker Sedeckes. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today's episode is another very special one. I have with me Dr. Lane Tipton, and we're going to be talking about his new book, The Trinitarian Theology of Cornelius Van Til. Uh, It's awesome. It's a Reform Forum book. Uh, big shout out to Camden for sending it to me. And uh, this is the book adaptation of Dr. Tipton's dissertation, uh, which is The Triune Personal God, the Trinitarian Theology and the Thought of Cornelius Van Til, which has been like an underground uh, dissertation amongst uh, Van Til folks for a while, where we trying to get it and sneak it around and email it to each other. So I'm really excited this book's coming out. I'm really excited to be talking with Dr. Tipton. Before we jump in, I want to thank everyone who's making this podcast happen by being a Patreon patron. uh, If you guys like this podcast, you want to see me continue doing this, continue having scholars on, continue doing the hard work of reading books beforehand, uh, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. You can join for as little as $3 a month and as much as like $100 a month, which would be insane. Um, you can also support the podcast by buying, um, buying some merch from the Parker's Pensies merch store. You can find the link in the description, or if you're on YouTube, you can find that in the store tab, uh, somewhere over there. And then uh third way, if you're watching on YouTube, there's a super chat button down here, a super thanks button. And, uh, yeah, if you want to buy me a cup of coffee or whatever, that'd be cool too. So thank you for all the support of all the patrons. And please, uh, if you're not already, please consider becoming one. Without further ado, then, let's bring in Dr. Tipton, and let's get going on Cornelius Van Til, the autotheos of the sun, perichoresis, uh, all sorts of good stuff like that. We're going to help you understand those words, so here we go. Dr. Tipton, thanks so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Parker, it's uh, a delight to be here. Uh, thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, definitely, man. Um, I'm I'm very excited, as I said, to uh, to have this book and be able to tell people where they can get it now without feeling guilty about, uh, you know, secretly having your dissertation or anything like that. Um, uh, before we jump in on the specifics of the book and Van Til, sure. I just wanted to ask, you know, how, how'd you get into Van Til? You spent a, major, uh, a huge portion of your intellectual life, I mean, writing a dissertation on his Trinitarian theology. How'd that happen? How'd you get into his uh, theology?
1: Well, uh, I, I became interested in Van Til pretty soon after I was converted in Emerald, Texas, and uh, began reading him and trying to understand him. And soon after that, we moved to Abilene, Texas, and I joined an Orthodox Presbyterian church there within about six months of being converted. Hmm. And uh, the pastor there was a graduate of Westminster Seminary. His name was Neil Lodge, hmm. and uh, he was quite uh, interested in Van Til. And so my interest continued to grow. I met my beautiful wife, Charlene, there in Abilene. We wound up going to Westminster, California. And at Westminster, California, two people in particular were really strong uh, proponents of Van Til, Meredith Klein Mm -hmm. and Robert Strimple. And they just fueled my interest in Van Til. And by the time in 1998, when we moved to Westminster in Philadelphia, uh, doctor I was under Dr. Gaffin in Systematic Theology, and the story, I don't know how many people know this, but I originally wanted to write a dissertation on Pauline Christology, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and do some work on uh, the processional relations of personal origin, 15a, uh, some of the implications of that for image endowment. uh resurrection, consummation, things like that. Yeah. Gaffin told me I needed to do a dissertation on Van Til hmm. and uh probe the deep structures of his Trinitarian theology. And he really, I, I won't say forced me because he's not a forceful man. Yeah. But he insisted that I pursue that. And then other things could come later. So I really owe it to Dr. Gaffin for pushing me decisively yeah. to spend the time reading Van Til and probing the background and influences and nature and structure and implications of his Trinitarian theology back yeah, in that's, 1998.
0: That's awesome. Well, I'm, I'm excited about it because um, so often uh, presuppositional apologetics, um, it, trying to understand Van Til and his thought and people watering it down and getting all the way down and, and, uh, to the popular level without uh, people get there without understanding His theology and you know this he's a churchman he was a theologian so i'm excited to get into his trinitarian theology because it's like the the heart of his apologetics the heart of his philosophy and theology so um this is a a a tough question i guess but it'll take us the rest of the time to explain it what is van Til's doctrine of the trinity would you say um would you say the self-contained trinity uh encompasses his whole doctrine or is that just a part of it what would you make of that
1: Well, the genius of Antill's Trinitarian theology is that he forges a unique and distinctive integration of classical Reformed Trinitarianism and classical Reformed Federalism. That's Mm. the key. Uh, In other words, it's not just an abstract affirmation of the ontological Trinity uh, in himself, wholly apart from the systematic implications of his pluriform relations to the world. Rather, Van Til is self-consciously seeking to avoid all forms of what's called correlativism, yeah. making God and the creature interdependent in a mutually constituting relation. And so the I think the best way to get at what Van Til's after is that he is uh, integrating um, a, a Calvinistic Trinitarian theology through the influences of the continental Dutch tradition, Bavink mm-hmm. in particular, the old Princeton tradition, A.A. Uh, a. Hodge and uh, Voss, especially I- in particular. And then he's, he's self-consciously seeking to integrate a distinctive Reformed theology of the Trinity to a classical conception of covenant theology, image and covenant that he learned from Voss. And he's always seeking to apply it. To ancient, medieval, or modern species of correlativism, where mm-hmm. whereby God is either um, changing and taking on the mode of the creature and mutating, denying simplicity, denying immutability, he's opposed to that with all of his soul, mm-hmm. or... The creature being reproportioned to God, which you find in traditional Roman Catholic theology. So that's the way I would put it, Parker, in terms of the, you know, the it's the integration of classical Reformed Trinitarianism and classical uh, Reformed Federalism in a self-conscious distinctive package, theological yeah. package of the creator-creature relation.
0: Yeah, and it's fantastic. I, I, um, I uh, particularly love his appropriation of... Um, Oh man, I just forgot of Bovink. Holy cow! Everyone's going to handle oh, no, me no, for no that. Worries, no worries. No. My goodness. Um, but so everyone loves Bovink today. Uh, but you say, well, how, how about Van Til? No, not Van Til. Like, well, I mean, he's just using Bovink. Um, but what's what's fascinating is that he's trying to. I think he's trying to advance uh, Bovink. And you can correct me if I'm wrong? Um, if not, advance at least uh, explain more thoroughly as he's interacting with. Uh, you know, Hodge and, uh, and Voss, he's, he's putting them together. Is he being, um? is he being creative? I, I know that's kind of like a, a scary word in theology. You don't want to be creative because we're, we're a historical faith. Is he being creative or uh? what do, we, what do you make of that, that fusion that he's, that he's uh, utilizing using?
1: Well, he, it's, it's a, that's a great question, Parker. I think you can say that he is constructive okay. as an Orthodox Trinitarian theologian. Yeah. So he's an Orthodox Trinitarian theologian who's constructive. And where is the constructive propension most clearly seen? Well, here's where it's seen. Ventil is not seeking merely to advance the continental Dutch tradition of Boving. Yeah. He's not seeking merely to to advance the um, old Princeton tradition. English Puritan tradition that he learned from Voss, who is himself Dutch, but operating in that in that context of Princeton, or the Hodges or others. He's rather seeking to present the two streams of historic Orthodox Trinitarianism and Covenant theology in an integrated way that shows the unique and internal genius of Reformed theology over against. Roman Catholicism, or modernist errors, yeah. uh, post Enlightenment errors. So I, I would not. I, I would say that Van Til is constructive as an Orthodox theologian, and the the creativity where I think he's most creative is not technically in his doctrine of the Trinity simpliciter, yeah. but in its application, the application of the Trinity to image and covenant. What he calls the representational principle, and its bearing on the apologetical method that grows organically from that theology. That's yeah. where I think it's in the application to, to, um, to covenant theology and to method, where you see the more creative propensions. But what is it? It's the it's taking standard well-worn paths of Trinitarianism from both the continental Dutch and English Puritan traditions, and then seeking consistently to apply that.
0: Yeah, that's really good. Um, There's this language uh, that you use, which I really like that you, that you bring it back in um, or that you don't hide from it, I guess, is uh, absolute personality. And uh, I, I really like this language a lot. Can you help us with it? Like what, so, so the, the triune God is, is, absolute personality um what what works being done by those words what does that mean
1: yeah that deal with uh, that especially from bovin van till there there's zero originality on that right right uh, because he's he's inheriting that from bovin a couple of ways to try to get at it you could think of it this way um, when van Til, uh, following bovink wants to speak of absolute personality bovink is insistent that God's unity is not abstract and impersonal God's unity rather uh, um expresses itself or exists I shouldn't say expresses itself God's unity exists in a threefold subsistence yeah. the father subsists as the entire divine essence the son subsists as the entire divine essence the spirit subsists as the entire divine essence and so there there is no impersonal or abstract or non unity of god that's that's point number 1 and within the trinity mean that god's unity is a tripersonal unity the second thing and i think bavink says this and aa uh, a. Hodge says this in his commentary on the confession and I think this is easily overlooked, but Bavink and Hodge and Ventil picks up on this, say that God is a self existent being, mm-hmm. being, a self willing being, a self conscious being. So it's not that there are these three independent centers of consciousness and will in God. That's tritheism. That's yeah. death. That's yeah. that. That's a tremendous. That's a heresy. Rather, God in His unity knows, wills, and acts. Yes, there are terminal personal uh, uh, dimensions to His acting—the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But in His unity, God is self-existent, self-conscious, and knows in the unity of his being and Bavink especially says that is partly why we want to talk about an absolute personality. So when you put it all together and I hint at this, don't hint at it. I think I say this, I uh, don't remember the page number, but I say that probably the fullest way to speak of absolute personality to avoid uh, confusion is an absolute triune mm. personality. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and there of course, we're wanting to affirm the unity of simplicity. We're wanting to affirm the incommunicable personal properties, the subsistent relations, and the coinherent relations. All of those together help us understand that God is an absolute triune personality without committing our, the error of modalism yeah. on the one side, denying the personal distinctions, or without committing the error of tritheism on the other side, separating the persons, And and uh, positing some kind of mute essence or something like that.
0: Yeah, Um, that's that's so helpful that you mentioned those two heresies. So um, in in Trinitarian studies, there's, uh, 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 you know, it's more complex than this, but but oftentimes people will point to like the Latin model of the Trinity, which uh, people argue errors more on the side of modalism that. You know, it looks like God's just wearing three different masks, but he's really just one person. And then the social model, which people say, well, look, that seems like there's three sep- separate beings and that seems like tritheism. And so uh, the, the goal is to to not do that. And and historically, the doctrine has been right there in the middle. Um, when it comes to uh, consciousness, uh, there's this there's this question that philosopher Thomas Nagel asks of bats. He says, is there, is there something it's like to be a bat? And it's like a good question for um, for us to think through whether something's conscious or not is my dog conscious well is there something that's like to be him and i wanted to apply this to to the trinity and see if we could um and and maybe it's inappropriate but is there something that it's like to be the son that is distinct from what it's like to be the father uh and then and, and the spirit likewise and then is there something to be is there something it's like to be god um what, what do you make of that? Is, that? is that an inappropriate question, I guess?
1: Well, I'm not, I would never come on your show and say, Parker, that's an inappropriate <laughs> question, sir. But <laughs> uh, let, let me put it this way. There yeah. are, um, it, when, and I deal with this in the third chapter, especially of the, of, of the uh, revised book, the, the Trinitarian Theology of Cornelius Van Til. Um, he, there, are dis, there are three incommunicable personal properties in the Godhead that do not deny or eclipse divine simplicity. The Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Spirit is, there's a spirating of the Spirit from the Father and the Son. Now, those are three irreducibly unique, incommunicable properties. The Son is not unbegotten, and the Father is not begotten. Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So when when we're talking about the Trinity and you ask the question, what's it like to be the father? Mm-hmm. It's to be unbegotten. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. What's it like to be the son? It's to be begotten of the father from all eternity. Uh, what's it like to be the spirit? It's to proceed from the father and the son from all eternity. And you cannot confuse or conflate or apply those properties to the whole um, Godhead, uh, yeah. you can't apply one property to the other uh, persons. Yeah. Now that that means then that there are incommunicable personal properties within a simple and undivided essence. So how do we relate them? Well, this is uh, uh, the way we do it. Those distinct per- and incommunicable personal properties are also modes of relation. To the essence okay the father as unbegotten subsists entirely as the undivided essence the son is eternally begotten subsists entirely as the divine essence so that so that while the the father is not the son and the son is not the father the father is entirely God and the son is entirely God mm-hmm. and when you start thinking of it that way we're going to reach we already have Parker this is <laughs> yeah. this is the 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 instant that our creaturehood hits us we have to recognize it's incomprehensible to the creature how such can be the case but it is an entailment of biblical teaching um an entailment of classical uh, of uh, creedal uh, theology ecumenical creedal theology lowercase c, catholic theology and it's an entailment of reformed confessional theology yeah. so does the son know himself as the son who is God? Yes. Does the father know himself as the father who is not the son? Yes. But what happens so often, and I try to avoid this in the dissertation and in this book, is that we can never think of consciousness as an independent center Mm. that segregates person from person or person from essence. And so... The the way to get at that question intelligibly is to get in place incommunicable personal properties, which are then relations of subsistence, and recognize we can affirm true distinctions among the persons, along the lines I just suggested, yet an absolute identity of person to essence. Mm and once and by the way once you put it that way you can come back around this kind of feeds back to the bovenant question you asked about that's where absolute personality really is put on grand display it's such a concrete uh, uh trinitarian category that you know the tendency is to say are there four persons and is that fourth person you know uh, is that a heresy no no not not at all once you once you understand these basic categories which van til Points you to in Hodge, which I have in the book, it it really does start to open up the profound mystery of Orthodox Trinitarianism. So yeah. that's the best shot I can take at it, Parker. That's really uh, good.
0: That's really helpful. Um, so when it, when it comes to uh, like the external operations of the Trinity, they're, they're uh, you know I, I always mess up the Latin, so I'm not going to try it. But um, there's a unity of the external operations of the Trinity, and yet the uh, the father wasn't crucified. The father didn't take on flesh. And so um, we're, we're messing with, you know, the deepest mysteries in the universe here. So, uh, you know, no pressure, but um, what, how how do we think through the fact that, you know, there, the external operations are uh, unified, that uh, there are not three unique, completely wholly distinct centers of consciousness. though there are uh, three unique modes of relation to the essence. Um, it seems like there's such a strong unity here that we might have some trouble uh, with the son acting on his own in uh, being incarnated in uh, being on the cross and dying for our sins. Do do you you see what I'm like uh, gesturing at here?
1: Oh, sure. Sure. I I think we can say something like this, that matching the um, undivided unity of the divine essence uh, and the processions of personal origin within the Trinity, the, the processional relations of personal origin, mm-hmm. um, which of course, when we speak of speak in that way, we're not talking in creaturely categories. We're simply speaking in terms of personal existence among persons who are God yeah, in themselves from all eternity. But just as the son is generated by the father uh, from all eternity, so the son is sent by the father uh, mm-hmm. to accomplish the historical mission after the fall of redemption in his humiliation and exaltation. So one way to try to get at it is that the works of God are extra outside mm-hmm. of himself. The processions are works odd intra. They terminate in God. The works of creation and providence and redemption are odd extra. They terminate outside of God. They fall in time. I think we could say something like this, and it's important to say, as Saint Augustine said, all of the works of God, odd extra, are one. Yeah. All of them. they there they cannot be divided. Mm-hmm. So in 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 from that standpoint, God creates, God redeems, yeah. God consummates. Yet within that undivided unity, there are personal works of a terminal sort Mm. so so i can put it in a really popular way in light of ephesians one the father elects the son redeems the spirit applies that redemption or to put it in a way that i think might be more useful to our listeners the while while it is god who saves sinners the unique Terminal act of the accomplishment of that redemption is the Son, who is essentially inseparable from the Father, but personally distinct from the Father, and and so that inseparable unified action finds a personal terminus yeah. in the Son, and this once again in the economy illustrates what we were saying about. Incommunicable personal properties, modes of subsistence, and an inseparable divine essence who, uh, as inseparable at the same time, has these three distinct modes of subsistence Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so it's the, you know, there's a fine line uh, when, when you're talking about this, but the works of God are one. In ad intra and ad extra, but there are distinctive personal acts of a terminal sort, ad intra and ad extra. And the father's unbegotten, son's begotten, spirit proceeds from the father and the son, ad intra. The father um, ordains in a unique way. The son redeems, accomplishes in a unique way. The spirit applies in a unique way. And these are, I think, illustrative of the incommunicable personal properties and the unique or distinctive personal agency of each person who is the one undivided God.
0: Yeah. So what's so what's so fascinating here? Uh, this is so cool. So uh, add intra for the folks uh, listening at home. It just means like internal to to the Godhead. So um, add intra. There's these modes of relation. Uh, the father's un, unbegotten. The Son is begotten, and the the Spirit. Uh, is uh, spirated or, or proceeds from from the two if we're uh, if we're Westerners, um, and then then you can match those up with the external works. And so when you do that, sometimes people get into this trouble of eternal functional sub- subordination or, or ESS eternal subordination of the Son, because you say, look, there's these ontological things going on inside the Trinity which necessitate that the Son was the one who was sent and not the Father. And then you mess with like, well, is the Father more ontologically Uh, basic than the sun uh and if so then do we have a hierarchy in the godhead and so what what you do in following uh van Til, or at least explicating what van Til is doing following uh, calvin is uh, bringing up the doctrine of autotheos um which is so fascinating it's so cool that it's it's working here can you explain just what what that term means before we jump in on it
1: Uh, sure that the sun's essence is neither derived nor sustained by another
0: yeah it's so good so so um so voss like denies the language of uh the fountain fountain of deity that you know the father is like overflowing his 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 deity into the son and then it goes from both of them to the the spirit and Van Til denies the uh similarly following voss uh denies the communication of the essence from the father to the son and so since the essence isn't communicated to the son but he has it of himself uh do do we just we don't have to worry about efs uh, or ESS at all, because it's not like the son's ontologically deriving his being from the father. Does that sound right?
1: Oh, uh, Parker, I think that's quite astute of you, sir. Um, I don't enter into that discussion or debate in the book. Yeah. But the cleanest, clearest, most most programmatic acts to the root of ESS is an autothean conception of the son's uh, person that mm. uh, there is no sense in which he is ontologically subordinate to the father because in his, his essence is neither communicated nor sustained by another. Yeah. And the, uh, and, and Van Til is following Calvin. He's following Warfield. Mm. He's following Voss. And I do think that this is one of the most underappreciated doctrines of John Calvin. I think if, if people were more robust in their, um, Understanding of being Calvinist, I think this would probably be at the center because this is a very distinctive attempt of Calvin to be thoroughly Nicene, yeah, to be full orbed in the doctrine of simplicity, and to avoid any conception of a derived or dependent deity in the Son. And so, as Van Til says, the chief her- one of the chief heresies in the church is a doctrine of subordinationism which is yeah. precisely what you find in the debate you're referencing and autotheos is i think the strongest um antidote to that venom
0: yeah so so um what's what's really fascinating here is that you ha- we have these irreducible unique properties the son's irreducible unique pro- property is being begotten and it's it's a way to individuate the persons of the trinity Uh, and it's, you know, we, we believe that God's revealed himself to be that way. So it's not just something ad hoc, but, um, those who, who do go in for the fountain of deity language, they can say, well, look, um, they can explain, uh, begottenness pretty, pretty easily by just saying, look, you know, the father is the fountain of all being. And so the son is begotten. He, his, his essence has flown out of the father. Um, and we say, you know, no, that's, that's not right. And we're following Calvin, um, The Son is autotheos, and I think that makes sense. With that in mind, though, um, how do we explain the Son being begotten? Because we need that—we need to—we need that uh, incommunicable property in order to individuate the Son from the Father and the Spirit. And yet, um, since we don't go in for the fountain of being language, we don't have it as clean of a story, I guess. is it just that, you know, the father has revealed it and it, not just, you know, if, the, if God reveals it, then he reveals it. But do we have any more to say or do we just say, um, you know, God has revealed it such that we can understand that the son is begotten, even though we don't have the ontology that the uh, the others would have?
1: Well, a couple of thoughts on this. The um, I think when you start to ask a systematic question, things start to become clearer. OK. And and it's and it's this. Um, And and by the way, the the, the, Brandon Ellis's uh, work on this, uh, which I I don't know if I I think I have it in a footnote, but his work, Calvin, Classical Trinitarianism and the Aseity of the Sun. Yeah, is a delightful study. And he'll he'll indicate that that Calvin's view did not become the majority report, even among all of the reformed. And so, you know, we need to be aware of that. Okay. Francis Turretin probably takes a middling way. Um, Warfield, uh, Voss, and others uh, affirm this. Vantilla is clearly influenced from uh, the work of Calvin, Warfield, and Voss on this particular point. Uh, so, so you know, it's it's not as though the um, denial of autothean personhood is a heresy. That's certainly not the case, but here's the, here's the point that might be useful. Um, the, 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 the relation of generation is one of differ, personal differentiation. It's an uh-huh. order of personal existence. Okay. And that eternal relation of differentiation is the unfolding for our understanding of an, of a Trinitarian Godhead, a 3 personed Godhead. Yeah. The Father is communicative with respect to the Son's person, but even in His person, the Son is not purely passive. He's not just a pure passive product yeah. of the Father. There's a reciprocity, a co-inhering, a communion that is active on both sides. And I think Calvin's view, once you recognize that, that, that it's not pure activity from the Father and a pure passive reception from the sun, but living personal communion among those who are fully God of themselves. Uh, I think that's what Calvin's after. Now, the systematic issue that I think helps people is this. Um, and it's a thesis that I have been developing for some time. I I have it at certain portions of the book, Parker. What, yeah. One of these days, I'll write more on it. But Thomas Aquinas affirms the communication of the essence in the act of eternal generation. And just because he does that, and he's explicit about this, the processional relations provide the archetype for the creator-creature relation. And the creature, Adam, in the work of special creation for Thomas Aquinas, in the work of exodus in creation, he is created outside God and imperfectly and indirectly participates in the essence of God. Hmm. When the donum is given, it inna- inaugurates and initiates an ascending participation in the essence of God that reproportions Adam above his nature to participate in the essence of God, ultimately to view intellectually. To view directly and without mediation the essence of God. Yeah, the beatific—that—that's what he would call the beatific vision. Then that's what, Tom- yeah. that, and that's Thomas's view, which Bovin calls a melting union. He calls it an erasure of the creator-creature distinction. But here's the key: that Thomas and the traditional Roman Catholics who follow him make the communication of the essence in the Trinity the ground for ascending participation of the essence it, through nature, creation, mm-hmm. grace, donum, and its consummation in the light of glory. And Van Til, following Bavin, uh, following Voss, following the classical reformed tradition, says the creature is not participating in the essence of God and in need of the donum superadditum The creature is rather created in personal religious fellowship with God as a creature and needs only the special providential terms of the covenant for that personal fellowship between the creator and the creature to consummate without Mm. this notion of ascending participation and being reproportioned above human nature. Supernatural Mm. grace reproportions above human nature. Covenant brings a full actualization to human nature, but never elevates it above its, mm. its status as, as as human nature. And so if you look at it from that path, here's what I think, Parker. Um, yeah. And I, I, I sketched this out the best I can in the book. Van Till sees that connection and is trying to say that the, the um, Trinitarianism and Federalism he's presenting stand over against the deeper Catholic conception in its conception of Trinitarian processions and in its doc, two-stage doctrine, actually three-stage, but two-stage nature, grace, and glory. Uh, it's ascending participation in the essence of God that, that requires, in Voss's terms, for for Rome, a Pelagian conception of nature, a sacerdotal conception of grace, and a full-orbed mystical conception of consummation. Yeah. So, so it's that... It's, it, you know, Ellis, please look at Ellis, read Warfield on the the fine points of Autothean personhood, but recognize that I think the genius of Antillus is that he's applying the non-communication of essence in the Trinitarian procession uh, processions to an analogical replica of personal fellowship mm. and not a participation of essence.
0: yeah that uh I'm, I'm waiting for that ellis book to not be a uh, a billion dollars there I, I i i want that book man they need to make a a soft cover
1: i hate to um, tell you i got it for around i found a, a used copy of it about eight or so years ago i don't remember quite how long for like 30 dollars oh man. i feel terrible I almost feel guilty <laughs> <You should. laughs>
0: um well so so with that uh participation in the divine essence i i see um you, you helped me see it more clearly that 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 is an impersonalistic, uh, impersonalist view of the divine nature, as if it were uh, some like a swimming pool you could just dip into or something. But but Van Til, following uh, you know the Dutch uh, and Old Princeton, are saying there there is no impersonal impersonality in God. You can't just participate in God uh, in the in the divine nature as if it were an impersonal thing that you can just be in because He's tripersonal and. Um, there's no like, there's no extra area for a human being to be in. Does, does that make sense? Does that sound about right?
1: Well, yeah, I will say this. Uh, Emery has a book, strangely uh, entitled something close to mind, the Trinitarian Theology of Saint Thomas Aquinas. Mm. And one thing that he does note is that the participation in the essence of God is also a participation in the processions uh. that. The missions of the the Son and Spirit in Reditus are to return the church to their participation in the essence of God and their return to the Father, mm. so that the, the, the more robust forms of uh and and i think thomas teaches this too i think Emery is probably the best interpreter of thomas in my opinion i don't i don't think he's been superseded right now among current interpreters but there are a lot of good ones uh they they make explicit that um the the exodus reditus of the creature follows the exodus reditus of the sun and the spirit in the processions and the mission of the Son and spirit ultimately is to bring about a participation in their processional return to the father hmm. so it's it it on that level they're not just trying to say it's an abstract impersonal essence, but they're going so far as to say that the missions affect a participation in the processional retitus of yeah. the Son and Spirit. But anyway, you slice that. Let, let me just put it this yeah. way. It's in, the, it's in the book, and I don't know if I feature this as much as I could because it's not a critique of Rome per se. Sure. But Westminster Confession 26.3 is explicit that creatures in no wise, not in any way, partake of the substance of the Godhead. Yeah. Not in creation, not in redemption. And the uh, if anyone's interested, I'll, I'll just plug his book. He'll blush at this. But yeah. Camden has a wonderful uh, exposition of uh, pre- precisely what the conformity to uh, the divine nature looks like. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I, it's in his book on or. Oh, awesome uh, that was published by P and R. But um I'll try to find it. I, I'm looking for it right now. Yeah. Um, Francis Turretin has a wonderful discussion of that in his um in his uh um institutes of electic theology. And um it is in um let me see if I can find it. Mm-hmm. Uh Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, The third topic, question four, in I believe it's volume three, he says this. This is just brief. He says, believers are said to be partakers of the divine nature, not univocally, by a formal participation of the divine essence. That's the Roman Catholic view. Okay. But only analogically. By the benefit of regeneration, which impresses upon them the marks of holiness and righteousness, most properly belonging to God, since they are renewed after the image of their creator. Thus, we must understand what often occurs in the fathers when they speak of the renewed man and the man made conformable to God, not essentially, which applies to the son only, Mm -hmm. but analogically. So uh, that's that's Turretin, uh, uh from his institute's third topic, question six, and I, I think that is a, a really helpful way to remember that the view. And I've, by the way, I've got an essay out on this in Reformed Forum that uh, the 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 magazine, yeah. the update uh, that that can explain some of this further. But there's a, a different conception of beatitude and what it means to be conformed to the divine nature uh in the reformed versus the roman catholic simply because there is a difference when it comes to uh ultimately communication of essence in the processions participation of essence in creation and the ascending elevation of the creature above that essence that creaturely essence in the beatific vision
0: yeah oh, that's really fantastic yeah so like you said either way you cut it whether there there is an impersonalistic uh there's an idea of an impersonal uh divine nature or whether you're caught up in the actual processions which seems like it's an ad interesting it's a sca- it's a it's a scary kind of crazy thought um,
1: to me it's very it was- very different very different yeah, from respect. yeah
0: so so um so in the reform view there's a there's an emphasis on the creator creature distinction um, which would say, no, look, you, there, there's no more, you don't proceed back up in, add intra into the Trinity. Um, I wonder, uh, this is, this is kind of taking us, uh, uh maybe not too far afield, but a little bit of a field of the book. So, so no worries if you don't want to get into it, but I wonder when it, when it comes to being image bearers of God, we're imaging God, you know, in an analogical fashion, do we, do we image, um, do we image the Trinity? In any particular way, I know we don't want to get into like, well, look at my uh, look at my psychology, and we don't want to go like the the Augustinian route, probably, and saying we're, uh yeah, we're an analogy for the Trinity. But do we image the the triune God uh, as individual image bearers?
1: Well, it's it's interesting that you would uh, raise that because the from the quote that Turton just gave, uh, he references. Uh, the image language from Ephesians four twenty four okay. and Colossians three ten, and the reference there is to be being renewed in four twenty four, in true righteous righteousness and holiness, in the image of God. It's not in the image of the Father. Mm. It's not in the image of the Son. It's not in the image of the Holy Spirit. And in 3.10, renewed in the knowledge of the Creator. And so there, you know, we we have to recognize this, that those texts make it unambiguous that the image bearer, whether it's pre-fall or post-fall, is made in the image of the triune God. Now, one complimentary thing to say, though, uh, there is a a sense in which Jesus Christ, as incarnate, has brought the assumed Adamic image, which is created in the likeness of the Triune God. He has brought that through his suffering and glory to eschatological perfection, mm. and Paul can say in Romans eight twenty nine and First Corinthians fifteen forty nine that we are being conformed to the image of Christ. And in uh, 1549, we will bear the image of Christ when our bodies are raised at the end of this age. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not competitive with being created in the image of the Trinity. Here's what's being said, that just as Adam was created in the image of the Trinity in an estate of probation that never reached glory, yeah, Jesus assumed that image as the last Adam, mm-hmm. and through his suffering has now, by resurrection and ascension, seen its perfecting to glory. Mm. And so we are bearing now and being renewed in the image of the triune God as it, through redemption, has been perfected in the incarnate and glorified Christ. Yeah. So that that's one way to try to put those two concerns together, because some people will say, well, which is it? Well, it's both. Yeah. And in that order, though, the the image of the triune God brought now to perfection through the second and last Adam in his humiliation and exaltation, which is now being conferred upon the church. And we are being conformed to that glorious, perfected eschatological image
0: that's that's so awesome man that that's uh you've really connected a lot of dots for me here this is awesome so that's why you know christ is the, the he's the last adam or the second adam um that's why you're either under adam or you're under christ and yes. i think you fleshing that out just is is way more helpful because i mean i've always affirmed that but it's actually helped me understand i don't know if it's ontologically or not but you've, you've helped me understand uh in a more deep way why uh why being under Adam is such a big deal? Like, we, we, cause there's all these debates on whether we inherit uh guilt or, you know, just a corrupt nature and all this stuff or Wh- whatever we can even, you know, circumscribe those. We can even get through those by uh, just pointing out like Adam wasn't perfect. Uh, he wasn't created perfect though. he was created good, but he fell. And so all of us are either under him or the second Adam who assumed the same nature that Adam had, but perfected it through living a perfect right, uh, righteous life. And, that's so cool, man, we're being made into the image of Christ, who is in the perfected state,
1: yeah, was, Adam was sinless, but yeah. in an state of innocency, sinless, mm-hmm. but under probation, Jesus sinless and beyond probation, yeah. and glorified it and and that's so it makes all the difference, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, and it I think it's helpful for Christians to understand that because it's not it's not uh uh christ's forgiveness is not getting us back to the garden it's not getting us yes. back to you know adam state prior to the fall because that it was an imperfected state it wasn't then we could fall again if we got back to that state no christ assumed that and took it all the way he scored the touchdown you know we're not at the at the one yard line or whatever i got some athletes that listen so i'm trying to throw in something for very them.
1: good yes um
0: yeah well okay the so
1: touchdown w- then which none greater <laughs> can be conceived
0: <laughs> there we go perfect that's a clip um Uh, so Dr. Yeah, there,
1: there's,
0: um, there's a doctrine that, so I went to, I went to Ted's, I went to Trinity and, um, I loved my time there, but uh, a doctrine that wasn't talked about a whole ton in these conversations is the doctrine of perichoresis. Um, and it, when it was, it was usually talked about in regards to the Eastern fathers and stuff. Um, but Van Til uses perichoresis, uh, and, and, and you do by way of Van Til to really help us understand this. uh, I'll I'll use the language and then I'll I'll ask you to explain it. But I I just pulled a quote, the persons of the Trinity indwell one another in relations of mutual co-inherence or inherence. Can you help us out with that? Because I love perichoresis, uh, but I'm going going to you to help us figure out what it means.
1: Sure. Um, Van Til quotes uh, from Charles Hodge, of course. And Hodge is as is well-known, very dependent on uh, Turretin. Mm. And Danny Olinger has done some work on Voss, and Voss is quite dependent on Turretin in the writing of his Reformed Dogmatics. And um, when Turretin is describing the classically Reformed doctrine of perichoresis, it's not about the relation of the person to the essence. earlier. Mm. 25, 30 minutes ago, we talked about how each person subsists as the entire and undivided essence. Yeah. Those relations of subsistence are absolutely foundational to Trinitarian Orthodoxy. It's why the persons aren't separate. It's Mm -hmm. why the persons aren't um, uh, detachable from the essence. Each person is that essence. So the relation of person to essence is one of identity. Now, in the doctrine of perichoresis, uh, Turretin says that each person not only subsists as the divine essence, but exhaustively permeates and mutually embraces the others. Mm. And so the concept there is that we, Parker, as image bearers, always exist in one way or another outside of one another. We always will. It's the nature, partly the nature of being a creature. But the persons of the Godhead, according to Turton, exist in such a way that they exhaustively indwell one another from the interior of the other without Mm. their personal identities being lost. It is By analogy, Hodge puts it this way, Turton puts it this way. It is the Trinitarian archetype of personal communion Mm. where person indwells person. And that most specifically, Parker, Perichoresis. the reason it's so important is it brings into view the precise character of Trinitarian beatitude. What is the beatitude of the Father? It is the Son and Spirit in an exhaustive mutual embrace of person to person that is entirely interior. It's absolutely ineffable and beyond comprehension. And my argument that I'm developing in the book Mm -hmm. that I think Van Til's suggesting is that the precise replication, the, the, the special creation of Adam in the image of God is in an analogical personal fellowship with God that reflects that perichoretic coherence. Mm. For Thomas and for the traditional Roman Catholic position, Adam has will, Adam has volition, but he's created outside of God. He needs as Voss says, grace infused to achieve a religious relation. Right. But for the reformed, perichoresis provides the unique trinitarian referent for saying Adam was created in personal fellowship with God that consisted in worship. Mm. And so it's not only a beautiful doctrine of explaining the the intra-Trinitarian relation of person to person, it's also the unique doctrinal or theological archetype for Adam's creation in the image of God and in covenant with God, and how that personal relation is given from the alpha point by creation and can be brought to fruition and consummation through covenant with no need of this ontologically reproportioning grace. Uh, So it's, it's quite, and at the end of the book, I I try to say, you know, Van Til's view here, this, the view I just explained, this, this perichoretic, this reproduction of perichoretic communion in Adam as the image of God reaches its fruition after the fall in Christ's ascension. Mm -hmm. Um, That, is what makes the reformed doctrine of the creator-creature relation stand out in such sharp contrast to traditional Roman Catholicism yeah. and modern neo-orthodoxy. Hmm. It really, we really do have here, Parker. And this is kind of the big picture argument of the book. There really is a Tertium Quid, a distinctively reformed alternative. To traditional Catholicism on the one side, and modern neo-orthodoxy, modern theology, modernism, yeah. on the other side, and my hope is that the the readers of this volume will be able to appreciate that and understand why they're reformed, confessionally reformed, in a way that Van Til has mapped out. Following the great minds i think in our tradition augustine calvin old princeton old amsterdam yeah. he's really just trying to restate this in the sharpest relief to the backdoor mutualism of rome the front door mutualism of Martin.
0: yeah that's fantastic and and i i love bringing up uh, i love what you said about perichoresis because for the the roman catholic listeners um and those who uh, are, are leaning that way, they might think, well, look, you took away the beatific vision from me. I don't get to participate in the divine in that way that I thought you was know, so cool. But then you give us w- what you've taken away with one hand, you've given us back with uh, with perichoresis because it's not that God could have, I don't know about could, I don't want to make mortal statements, but it, sure it's so. not that God you know, created us uh, and then had to give us grace in order for us to have this relationship with him. No, he created us. And because of perichoresis, because of that, like... We are just in this uh, this covenantal relationship with God. It's it's this elevation back up, but just not past the the point of creature creature distinction.
1: That's yes, as high as you can go, which is fantastic. Yes, yeah. yes, it's it's the full the, the reform view is the full creaturely actualizing of mm. what was concreated in image endowment and advanceable by covenant. Mm and yeah. it's glorious it's it's a it's a cat and westminster confession i think 26 3 distinguishes participation of the essence on the one side partaking mm-hmm. of the substance f- from com- covenantal communion with persons trinitarian yeah. persons in christ
0: yeah well so so one follow-up on that uh and then uh i'll let you go here this has been so this has been so good i wonder if um so, so in our doctrine of the Trinity here, we have these three incommunicable attributes: uh, unbegottenness of the Father, begottenness of the Son, procession of the Spirit. Uh, when when you think about like the high octane, uh, octane uh, uh, to, uh, Thomistic view of simplicity, it's like everything that is that's in God is God. Uh, you know, there's no real distinction among the attributes; they're all one. Uh, there's only you know conceptual differences. Um, and that's on our side. Do we? Does this view of the Trinity necessitate a, a, a different view uh, of the of simplicity? Because not not all the attributes are are one. Because we have these three incommunicable ones, and we actually need those in order to differentiate the different persons of the Trinity. What what, what do you make of, of that? Uh, well, simplicity. I, yeah. No,
1: that's that. that's really really helpful. I, I have not been able to find an objection to the strong. Uh, doctrine of simplicity that you find in Augustine or Thomas. This isn't a unique. This this strong doctrine of simplicity is something you find in Augustine. Mm. It's something you find in Aquinas. It's something that you find in um, uh, Calvin, Bavinck, um, and 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 Van Til is extremely robust in his doctrine of divine simplicity, uh, and and I haven't seen. Uh, for instance, I've got a dear friend, James Dolzell, yeah. who can affirm this uh, strong doctrine of simplicity. Which, by the way, so many ostensible Vantilians just deny simplicity, deny immutability, deny impassibility. It's uh, it's tragic. Hmm. James affirms that, but he also affirms these incommunicable personal properties. So, I I I'll tell you where my concern with Thomas on simplicity lies. It's not that he affirms it. Okay. I think he should be commended for uh, affirming it. Uh, I think it's uh, critical that we affirm a robust doctrine of simplicity. the The concern that I have is the natural theological method by which he seeks to arrive at that doctrine of simplicity, mm. moving from uh, from from natural reason, the inner light of reason, is does not have as con-created and naturally implanted, the knowledge of God, and therefore must move from sensible objects through an inferential process to arrive at a conception of simplicity or immutability, which makes that conception dependent upon a kind of rational and inferential process, whereas Calvin and the Reformed tradition have uh, argued uh, very rigorously that the knowledge of God, Romans 1, his eternal attributes, who he is, um, is is revealed to all so that from the outset of knowing self, the image bearer knows God, his eternal yeah. power and divine attributes. They have been clearly seen, clearly made known in them, in our choice, in them. And so, uh, you know, I, I think uh, I'll put it this way. Um, Dr. Scott Oliphant, uh, uh, Professor Frame, uh, as Vantillians, they have they cannot give an unqualified doctrine of divine simplicity. Hmm. Um, Frame uh, affirms a second mode of historical existence. I have it in the footnote in the book. Yeah. Oliphant uh, affirms a covenantal mind. He affirms God lacks power covenantally. He affirms that God is ignorant of the future covenantally. He's got a full orb dialectic between essential and covenantal properties, and he ascribes a whole host of created properties prior to the incarnation to God and calls them covenantal. Mm -hmm. That is um, not classically reformed. It's not even creedal, Mm -hmm. those, those views. Those are denials of what I call unqualified simplicity. So the, those who affirm unqualified simplicity, I think, are are friends of creedal orthodoxy and classically reformed orthodoxy. Hmm. And I think the question starts to become, with uh, as we start to to, to fine tune that debate more, how do we arrive at our doctrine of simplicity? Our doctrine of immutability, our doctrine of impassibility, and how did those attributes of God relate to the Trinitarian processions? And then how does the creature relate to the essence of God in nature and in grace? Yeah. And I think so. I think with Thomas, um, it's it's I, I view it this way and I'll be I'll, brief here, Parker. Yeah. Um, uh, just like with Lutherans, we can affirm a catechetical definition of justification. We can say that we agree with Lutherans that you, that justification is the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. Where do we disagree? Well, we disagree with them on how it relates to a theology of union with Christ. Yeah. They want to place it as the alpha point for union. We want to see it as a facet of union, something that manifests union. Mm-hmm. So we have a different we can we can agree on a kind of catechetical definition but in terms of its theological function in a system yeah. there's great difference sure and similar here on on simplicity i can agree with thomas and, and laud him especially over these deniers of simplicity and you know once god reveals himself he's composite he's mutable he's ignorant he's got a covenantal mind he's historical uh those are uh, that 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 belongs more and that's in the socinian or open theist tradition not a reformed mm-hmm. but uh, so but but with uh, with thomas so i want to affirm what thomas is saying but it the the issue is not whether we can agree on the catechetical definition it's more on the methodological and systematic implications yeah. of how that doctrine functions
0: yeah what work it's doing in the system yeah, yeah. yeah. totally Man, that's 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 really helpful. I've I've been thinking a lot about uh, the authorial analogy for the God-world relation that God interacts with the world uh, in a, in an analogous ca- uh, situation, an analogous case to uh, an author, and and I'm I'm trying to think through whether um whether that can help us with uh, you know uh, Professor Frame and and Dr. Oliphant's view and saying like. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote uh, uh, The Great Divorce, but, you know, C.S. Lewis in Oxford didn't change. But C.S. Lewis as a character in there was talking to different characters. I don't know. That's a whole huge project, and, and maybe we can all get together on it someday. But, um, uh, Dr. Chipton, I want to thank you so much for for the work here that you've done in, uh, you know, going back into the dissertation and making it a book for for us. I really I commend this book. Um, and I, I really appreciate what I really appreciate about you is that you take the historical doctrines and you give theological reasons for them instead of just saying but that's what the the old folks used to say that's history there that's a good reason but there's more that can be said and i really appreciate that you do that as a as a systematician um Thanks. and some sometimes it's a critique i have for the historical folks that they go "No, well, I, he said I it so you have to yeah
1: I, I appreciate that brother one quick thing on the cambridge change thesis yeah. on the the frame and all of it material just remember. That Oliphant says God literally changes, yeah, literally yeah. is ignorant, literally lacks knowledge uh, in the relation. And Frame says he literally has historical existence and befores and afters. So mm-hmm. I don't think the Cambridge change is going to, 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 to do the, the heavy lifting on that. We should just—the um, the, the best way to think of it, just the briefest way to put it, is that Reformed confessional theology— affirms an unqualified doctrine of simplicity and immutability, odd intra and odd extra. Mm. That's, that's the best way to think about it. But brother, thanks for having me on. And it's a delight to, to be on here. And, uh, I pray this, that your work continues to prosper and i really appreciate the opportunity to be on thank you awesome
0: yeah thank you again folks the book is the trinitarian theology of cornelius van till by dr lane tipton and it's uh you can find it i believe at reformforum.org. Um, uh, but i'll put a link in the description to the book so you all can get that really easily uh this has been parker's pensies and as always all glory to god